0: Well, good morning, good morning, good morning, Discover Church. How's everybody feeling this morning? Yeah. Yes. yeah. I'm excited. yeah. How many of you are still a little, uh, maybe food, food hungover? Yeah. yeah. We got a lot of people out today, a lot of people traveling still on the holiday, a lot of people tuning in online. Thank you for watching online. Can you put your hands together and welcome everybody that's watching online? so glad that you guys are with us today. Man, Jessica and I had a phenomenal Thanksgiving. We went down to uh, Arkansas, spent some time with some family, uh, had a great time, played board games, got into maybe a little bit of a fight uh, over the board game, but I did win the board game, and so that was good, and just awesome, awesome. It's kind of hot in here. Let me, sorry, take this off real quick. Oh yeah. Capped off by a great win by my razorbacks over the Tigers. You know what? Jesus was rejected by his own family, so I'm okay. No, we did, we had a great 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 Thanksgiving. Thought I'd have a little bit of fun with all the Mizzou Tiger fans. Listen, it's been a long time since I've been able to brag against Mizzou fans, and so I'm just going to enjoy it while it lasts. If it feels like I'm gloating, I probably am, because I've been in a pit of misery for five years. Anyway, uh, hey, one of the things you might notice today is we got some—we uh, have a younger demographic in the room with us this morning. Uh, we got some little ones with us, uh, some toddlers, some babies. They might be squirming around a little bit. Uh, listen, we love ministering to kids. We we refer to our kids uh, as future world changers. We believe in our kids, and we love what they're doing. But every once in a while, uh, we have a volunteer shortage, which leads us to not being able to fully open up our Discover Kids space. So today, we. Uh, had to close down our toddler room, so we've got some extra littles with us. If you were here last week and we wrapped up Who's the Minister Here series, perhaps this would be a great time that the Spirit of God, in case you didn't hear it last week, God is trying to tell somebody today that I I didn't stutter, I really meant it. You should volunteer to serve and discover kids because when you do, you not only minister to these little world changers, these future world changers, you minister to their mom and their dad and the church at large, and so... um, Listen, we, we would love to have you join in and serve back at Discover Kids. Moms and dads, if you're here and little one gets out of control, listen, we've got the audio of the message being piped into the lobby. So if, if they kind of start getting crazy, you need to take them back there to minister to them and attend to their needs. Just know the audio's out there and you'll be able to uh, enjoy the service uh, out there as well. We're gonna start a new series today. Um, back in World War II, there was a, uh, a phrase that was coined by fighter pilots. This was really kind of the pinnacle of the aerial dogfights between uh, fighter pilots, and there was this phrase that was coined by them uh, during then during that time called "fighting blind" and what or "flying blind." And what it meant was it, it was it was a season. If you were if you were flying blind, it means that you were in a situation where you could not see the horizon out your windows whether it was, it was smoke from explosion or there was clouds or it was dark and you couldn't tell where the, where the horizon was, that what happened was is you, you no longer could rely on your sight to look outside and see the horizon. You had to learn to rely on your instrumentation inside the plane. Now, what's interesting in modern times, our our planes now have become so technologically advanced that it's actually the exact opposite now, that if a, a fighter pilot now refers to flying blind, what they mean is, is they've had equipment malfunctions on their instrumentation on the plane, and they have to look out and fly by sight based on what they see on the horizon, and as I've been doing some studying in preparation for this series, I've learned a couple of things. Um, and people who know things about flying say that no human can fly in the midst of clouds or fog to the point that they can't see without instrumentation for very long at all, without eventually flying into and crashing into something. That there are times when you were up in the air, when you were in the machine, when you were caught up in the chaos of of the fight or the the chaos of the instruments breaking down or the engine failure, whatever the case may be, that, that, that what happens is, is that in the midst of all of it, if you don't have something that you can train your eyes on, when the primary thing that you've come to be trained on fails, then you will fail. And what pilots have had to learn is that over the ages, what was primary and what was secondary has changed, but what they've had to be trained in is not just a primary what they can see and what they can measure things off of, but a secondary thing that they can see and measure things off of as well. Because if they don't know how to do that, then they will be caught flying blind and it will be an incredibly dangerous situation. And I am convinced that what's true of fighter pilots when they fly is true of us today in the way that we live that in order for us to successfully navigate the conflicts, the tensions, the chaos, the battles or the fights in our lives, we have to learn that God has God wants us to be able to have not just a primary instrumentation or a primary tool for us to be able to look and see and measure how we're doing and where we go and what we do next off of, but God wants us to see that there are secondary tools that he has given us as well in order for us to be able to successfully navigate the battles and the conflicts of life. And so over the next few weeks, as we lead up to, uh, until we get to Christmas Eve, we're gonna be in a series that's not really a Christmas series. Um, and so I'm sorry to disappoint, but it is a series that I believe is gonna touch everybody. Because in this series, I am going to be walking you through God's word and teaching you how to walk into the conflicts of life, how to deal with the fights of life, how to fight the battles of life with your eyes wide open so that you don't get caught fighting blind. Because what is dangerous for a fighter pilot to fly blind, if they don't learn to rely on their secondary tools, will be dangerous for you if you go into every conflict thinking that the person you're in conflict with is the real enemy. Now, I don't have to spend a lot of time telling you, if you've lived any time on this earth, you know that we're going to go through battles. We're going to go through conflict Oftentimes we go through conflict on a weekly basis. Sometimes it's a daily basis and depending on the season of life that you're in, perhaps conflict is just a constant state. There's never a time when you don't feel like you're not in conflict. If you're married, you're in conflict with your spouse about what the right thing to do is or who was right in that situation or no, I said this, oh no, you didn't, right? Like like in, in marriage, there's conflicts. If you are a parent, or if you have a parent, there are conflicts and those conflicts evolve when your kids are little. And when you're little as a kid, you don't really get much say in the conflict because you're little. But as you get older and the conflicts become more substantive, it's not just, it's not just right and wrong and, and don't throw, uh, you know, I had, to, I had to talk to my kids this week, like do not throw the dog's toy across the house where there are pictures. Don't do that. Something's gonna break. But as you get older, those conflicts become, well, more conflictual because there are things in actual life and things that you're dealing with personally. There are battles between companies and teams and organizations. There's battle between rivalries where sometimes you finally get out of the pit and you finally win one. And I don't know if you know this or not, but there's even conflict within ourselves. There's this never-ending conflict within ourselves between what we want most and what we want now. All of us felt that conflict on Thanksgiving Day when we bellied up to the table and said, what I want most is to be thin and fit and healthy and have a six pack. But what I want now is give me some sweet potato casserole. Ladies, that's what I was saying in my house. There's this constant turmoil, this constant conflict, this, this temptation between who you want to be and, but what it is that you want in the moment now. And what happens is, is that we go through all sorts of conflict. We go through all sites of battles. And, and what happens is, is we go into battle after battle after battle. And, and because we oftentimes are unaware of the bigger picture of what's going on, we will fully lock and load and engage in the battle. And because we engage in the battle the way that we do, we oftentimes lose the war. Oftentimes when the war gets lost, it usually means a relationship has been severed or it usually means a dream has died. And so what I wanna do in this series is I wanna, I wanna teach you how to fight battles in such a way where you're not fighting blind. I love the graphic that our team came up with for this. Because this is what happens so oftentimes when we don't realize everything that's going on in the whole picture. You see, in our Western world, we have been, um, we've grown so accustomed to a particular way of thinking that, that all we really seem to matter, all we really seem to think about, all we seem to really focus on are the physical, the tangible, the practical, the pragmatic, the things that can be measured and weighed. And what we don't understand in the Western world is something that Jesus and his disciples and all of the the people who are mentioned in scripture would have understood in the Eastern world is that there's a whole lot more going on than just what can be seen and felt and touched and measured. And the title of my message today is something that I want to try to kind of lay the groundwork. I want to kind of provide a little bit of an overview of where we're going today. And over the next three weeks, we're going to get crazy practical and we're going to dive into it today. But here's what is so critical. If we don't understand this, then we will always be like the dude in the picture who's trying to fight the fight he's in the ring he's in the ring of life you have things that are going on you have goals you have aspirations whether they're in your career or in relationships you have things that you hope for and so you train and you do all of the things to get right and then you find yourself in the ring of life you find yourself into in the battle in the fight and without even recognizing it you step into the ring blindfolded and you're trying to fight the fights blind And the reason for that is because so oftentimes you don't understand that everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm gonna unpack that as we work through this today. But what I want you to see is that everything that happens in our life, everything that we go through, every day when you wake up, there are are opposing forces that are constantly at work. There is opposing forces of the kingdom of good and the kingdom of evil, of the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. Now, let me stop right here and just say, if you're new to faith, if you're curious about faith, if you've got questions about faith, maybe, maybe this is your first time in church ever, or maybe in a really long time. Listen, I've, I'm fully aware that any time that Christians start talking about this kind of stuff, it sounds kind of hokey. It sounds kind of weird. And frankly, there's a lot of us who grew up in church, depending on your tradition, that anytime somebody started talking like this and started talking about the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of the devil, you were just trained by your parents and your upbringing in church to go, man, those are crazy folks. But I wanna help you see today that Jesus understood this. I wanna help you see today that Jesus understood that, that there was nothing that he faced in the physical that did not have a spiritual string attached to it. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus lays out that the opposing nature of these two forces, the opposing nature of these two kingdoms. This is what Jesus said. He said, the thief, and he's referencing the devil, the devil has come to steal, kill, and destroy That is the only reason why he's here. That is his chief aim and his chief focus. He has his version of victory is only categorized by your defeat. That's how he measures victory. Because ultimately, if you and I experience enough defeat, then it will upset God's desire and his kingdom and his objective and his agenda, which means God loses. But Jesus said, I'm not like that. The thief has come for no other reason than to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come so that you can have life and have it more abundantly. Two kingdoms, two opposing agendas, trying to help us see that everything that we experience in life, it's not just physical, everything is spiritual. Spiritual. Jesus gave an example about what this looks like in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew 16, Jesus is trying to help his disciples come to terms with why he was here. He was trying to teach them and explain to them the purpose. And his purpose wasn't to come so that he could be a great teacher. His purpose wasn't to come so that he could perform miracles. His purpose wasn't come so that he can get a lot of people to gather around him and be super popular. No, 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 no. Jesus explains in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, why he came. The express purpose, Every, all of the teaching and all of the miracles and all of the crowds and all of the accolades and all of the affair, all of it was for this express purpose and Matthew 16, 21, he says, to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. Jesus said, Listen, y'all got to understand the reason why I came is not so that I can be popular or liked. The reason why I came is because there is a bigger agenda, a kingdom agenda, and God my Father has sent me not to be praised and adored. He sent me to be crucified and killed. Now, the disciples had a hard time with this. Peter, the self-appointed leader, doesn't like this one bit. Now, some of y'all are gonna resonate with Peter because Peter is the dude that went to Thanksgiving with everybody at the family and sat at the table and always had the ability to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. Peter was the dude who probably would have wore the Christmas sweater that I saw that I thought about getting some members of my family that says unvaccinated and ready to talk politics. <laughs> I'm so glad we can laugh about it. I was nervous about that. I know that's kind of, you know, it's tense and I'm not trying to stir all that up, but praise the Lord we can laugh in church because some things are just funny, amen? Thank you, thank you, thank you. The next verse says this, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, I just want you to picture this. Jesus, Jesus, and Peter grabs Jesus by, I picture he does this like my mom would have done me when I did something wrong at the grocery store. She pulls me by the ear. So I don't imagine you, I imagine Peter grabbed him by the elbow. You know, my grandma would have done that. She'd grab me right in here and pinched like a, like a, she called it a horse bite. She pinched there and she dragged me aside. And she, she Jesus, you are not going to do that. Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, I imagine Jesus is a little frustrated right here at this moment. I mean, Jesus has been trying to, you know, doing everything he can to try to help them understand what's going on. And and they're just not getting it, right? Like, again, I feel like Peter sometimes because God tries to teach me things and there's times where I just don't get it. Jesus is trying to tell them, this is the reason why I came is what I wanna do. And, and he's frustrated, and he's irritated. And Peter comes along and Peter's not only, he's not listening, he's not paying attention. Peter's the guy who when someone else is talking, he's not listening, he's only thinking about what he's gonna say. Are you married to somebody like that? My wife is. Because I'm that guy. Peter's not listening, he's not paying attention. Peter pulls Jesus aside and goes over my dead body. Jesus is frustrated. He's irritated because, because of what's going on. You know, when I get in these situations where I feel like I am I know what I'm supposed to do and I start going that way and people start telling me that I shouldn't do that, I have a tendency to kind of bow up and kind of be like a steamroller and be like, move out of my way or get rolled over. Because in those situations, what happens when the, when when somebody stands in opposition to us, whether it's a spouse, a child, a parent, a coworker, a boss, a neighbor, somebody on Facebook, what's the tendency that a lot of us have? Some of us have a tendency, we just shut down and go, you know what, it's not worth it. And God bless you. You are the wise ones in the room. Others of us go, hmm, I will flex on you. You will not tell me what I can and cannot do. And what happens is is we recognize conflict, it's a battle, and we go to war on the battle. Sometimes we have a tendency to just blow up, it's like launch nuclear codes. <sighs> because we fight blind. But Jesus never fought blind. Jesus had the advantage of being fully God and fully man. And he knew that everything was spiritual, not just physical. And so Jesus looks at Peter. I want you to recognize what's happening here. Jesus looks at Peter and he says this. He turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of man. You see, Jesus looks at Peter, but he recognizes that there's some, there's another, there's another force, there's another kingdom, there's an opposition that's pulling the springs physically that's pulling things on a spiritual realm. And Peter, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. He realizes that Peter, yes, is, is saying and living and being as a person. He's not trying to insinuate that, that, that Peter is, is demon possessed. He's simply acknowledging, devil, you are pulling some strings here. Peter is not my enemy. You are. Let me pause. Let me talk to the teenagers just for a second. When I was in high school, I read this verse. Verse and when me and my mom were having a, a spirited debate i remember that somebody at one point said that you should you should memorize scripture and that you should use scripture as an offensive weapon and so i had memorized this verse one of one that i had memorized And my mom and I were in a spirited debate. We were in the kitchen, I can remember it. And she was going on and on and on being ridiculous about something. And I said, I I was really upset and I just like a spirit of calm and peace just washed over me. And I turned and looked at her and I said, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) It became a self-fulfilling prophecy because she did with a paddle. And straighten me right up. I believe we should get back to some of that a little bit, but that's, I just stepped in it there. Anyway, to the teenagers that are listening to this, I don't advise that strategy. It's not gonna work out for you. So don't do that. Don't do what I did. But what I want you to see And so I want you to be aware that there are spiritual forces at work. Now listen, I'm not one of those people that believes that, that the devil's hiding behind every bush. Okay? I'm not. I'm not one of those people that believes that everything bad that's happened in my life is of the devil and blame the devil and everything that's good in my life is praise Jesus, you're so good. I've actually come to a point in my life where I've come to realize that some of the worst situations in my life were actually a blessing by God because it helped to eliminate distractions and focus my eyes in my life and allow me to address some sin issues that I had in my life. And it allowed me to build my faith and have a greater clarity of who Jesus is, that he is the one who stands with us in the midst of the trials, I've also experienced in my life that there's been a whole lot of things that in the moment felt really good and in the earlier season where I was less mature in Christ, I would have said, oh, thank you, Jesus, for this and thank you, Jesus, for that. But what I've come to the point of realizing is that there's a lot of good things that I would call good that I've actually come to the point of recognizing that it's not God who gave me that, it's the devil who's trying to lure me away from Jesus and he's luring me away with things that he knows that I enjoy. So not everything good is of God and not everything bad is of the devil. But what I do believe is necessary that we understand is that if we don't learn to see that everything is spiritual, there's spiritual forces at work behind everything that's physical, then we're going to miss out and we're going to be duped and believing and following things that aren't true and it's going to lead us to bad places. Now listen, I believe in the devil. And if I was the devil... What I would work really, really hard to do is I would work really, really hard to make people believe that I don't exist. If I was the devil, I would work really, really hard to make people believe that hell isn't real. Because if I can make people believe that hell isn't real and that I don't exist, then the defenses are down. And I would have free reign to do what I wanted. You see, the reality of it is, is the devil is real. Hell is a very real place. The devil hates you, and he hates anything in your life that brings you joy or goodness. And he wants to do everything he can to steal, kill, and destroy. But what I also believe is that the devil has already lost, and that in Christ we have the opportunity to stand in a victory that has already been won for us. And the only power that the devil can ever have over me and over anyone who has ever trusted in Christ for salvation is only the power that I cede back to him in a moment of weakness. Where I do that thing that they talk about in sports sometimes where someone steals defeats from the jaws of victory. So I don't, I don't wanna get crazy and, and put too much emphasis on the devil, but I think it's critical that we understand that he is real. I wanna spend the rest of our time together walking through Ephesians chapter six because it's gonna help us. If you're there, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter six if you have your Bibles with you. Because in this passage of scripture, the apostle Paul, he's, he had just finished teaching on how best to live in harmony with the relationships that are closest to us. How best to live in harmony with the relationships at home and at work and and all that kind of stuff. And then what he does is he, it can seem if you're not paying attention that that he he pivots to a, a, a different conversation. But he doesn't. He's actually gonna continue in the same conversation about the context of relationships. And what he's going to do is he's going to teach us, if we're listening, if we'll pay attention, that, that in, in the context of all of these relationships, this is how to live in harmony in them, you have to understand that conflict is gonna happen. Battles are coming. And if you're not ready for it, and if you're not aware that everything is spiritual, then you will believe that the person standing in front of you is the one that you're fighting against, but it's not that there are spiritual forces behind that are trying to help that are trying to stir up the waters. This is what he says Ephesians 6:10 Finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Here's the first thing we have to understand. That God's desire for us in any situation in any season in any conflict in any battle is for us to be able to stand strong. Not to sit down in passivity. Not to lay down and be walked over. But in the midst of standing strong, it doesn't mean that we stand strong and be stubborn as an ox. But that we can stand strong, not in the conflict with the individual, but that we can stand strong against the wiles of the devil. You see, here's what he wants us to understand. The first Peter five tells us that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour here's what that means. It means the devil is no dummy. He's no fool. He's constantly stalking. He's constantly watching. He's like a football coach who's watching film on the opposition, looking for strengths to avoid and weaknesses to exploit. You see, the devil is constantly aware of you. He's constantly aware of us and the way that we live. And he's constantly looking for ways and he's looking for patterns of sin and patterns of brokenness and patterns of unforgiveness and patterns of bitterness and patterns of anxiety and patterns of, of all of these things where he can, he can evaluate you, he can watch your tape, he can find your tendencies and then he can press the issues on those areas. And God's desire, regardless of the conflict, is that we can stand strong, not against the person that we're in conflict with, but that we can stand strong recognizing that the person I'm in conflict with is not my problem. It's the spiritual forces at work that are going on in this situation where the devil is trying to steal, kill, and destroy something in this situation. And if you never realize that, then you will always be like the boxer who walks into the ring blindfolded and just swinging blindly, throwing haymakers, hoping that it lands and you can knock out your opponent. He goes on to say, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Here's what he's saying. He's saying you need to understand that our fight, our battle, is not just a physical battle. He's saying, and then he goes on, and what he talks about in these principalities and powers and all this, this is a this is a, 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 a kind of like a military description of a hierarchy among the demonic forces. There's a whole lot that we don't know and there's a lot of people who proclaim to know everything that this means and they don't because God doesn't give us a ton of clarity around some of these things, but he does give us some insight into some of these things. And what he wants us to know is that there is a whole, there's a whole realm, there's a whole organized, highly effective, highly capable, highly volatile, highly deadly force of demons that are constantly in opposition to the kingdom of God. And they're constantly evaluating, constantly studying our lives. And our wrestling is not with the flesh and blood, with the physical, with the person that's in front of us, but it's against these demonic forces. Notice what he goes on to say. Therefore, because of this, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. He's saying, listen, if you want to be able to win the battles, if you want to win the conflicts, if you want to win the issues that you're going to have to fight, then you need to understand that there's more than what's going on than just what meets the eye, that there are spiritual things at work that are behind it. In the same way that Jesus was able to look at Peter in the face and address the spiritual forces that were at work that were contrary to the nature of God and what God was trying to do, God wants us to be able to do the same thing. That doesn't mean that every time you get in conflict with somebody, you look at them and go, get behind me, Satan. Okay, that's just weird. Don't do that. I don't advise you as you go into your end of year performance evaluations and your boss gives you an evaluation that is less than favorable that you stand up and go, get behind me, Satan. Because they will probably say, okay, I will. As you walk out the door, you're fired. You crazy loon. It's not what Jesus is saying. It's not what God is teaching. Instead, here's what God wants us to understand, that we can't, if everything is spiritual, then we have to understand that we can't fight spiritual fights with physical tools. We can't rely on our intellect or our strength or our our cunning strategic ability to be able to fight the battles of life. Some of those things will be helpful but helpful in the secondary. The primary is that we realize that everything really is spiritual. Now let's look what goes on. What he's getting ready to do is he's getting ready to use a metaphor of a Roman soldier. I've got a picture that I wanna throw up on the screen so that you can kind of see in case you've forgotten what a Roman soldier looked like. Paul is going to use the depiction of a Roman soldier and he's going to describe the armor that God has given us. And so as Paul is writing this, the original audience would have immediately understood everything that you see here. But not only would they have been able to look at it and go, yep, that's a helmet, and that's a sword, and that's a shield, they would have also understood the way that those things were used. And so I wanna wanna go through this today. I wanna unpack this as we work through it. Ephesians 6, chapter 14, it says this. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. This is the belt of truth. Now, a Roman soldier... As they were, wearing, they would have had their 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 their, uh, uh, their armor on and all of their stuff for war on. But oftentimes they would have wore kind of a tunic, something that was kind of a big bathrobe-looking thing, dress kind of thing that they would have wore over that. Because you know, I mean, it, can we go back to the picture just for a second, please? You know, if you were to wear something like this, you know, this morning might be a little cold. Okay, so they would have wore a tunic. All right, you can go forward. They would have wore this tunic, and, and any time conflict erupts, any time the battle would have happened, then they would have they would have pulled up their man dress, and they would have tucked it into their belt of truth, into into their their belt, in order for them to be able to not be hindered and not be tripped up by anything hanging around their feet. And so, what we have to understand is when God talks about the belt of truth, He's referring that primarily we need to understand that the Word of God is truth. And that it is the word of God that we measure all things internally and externally by. And when God tells us that we need to, he leads and he starts that we gird ourselves or we put on the belt of truth. What he's saying is, is that that needs to be our first step. We need to first put on the belt of truth because what the belt of truth does is it allows us to be able to measure what is and what isn't and that we should live authentically and fully devoted to God so that we don't have anything that trips us up. The writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 12, 1, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to convey is that we need to orient our life. We need to build our lives. We need to devote our lives to the things of truth, to the things of God's word. Because when we don't, we're inclined to get tripped up by unnecessary things. And so God tells us first that we need to put on the belt of truth. Then he says, also having put on the breastplate of righteousness, what is this? Well, at the moment of salvation, what we have to understand is that there was a transaction that happened, that God took all of our wretchedness and wickedness and sinfulness and all the things that we had done wrong and he exchanged it with Jesus's righteousness. And so at the moment of salvation, the righteousness of Jesus comes as a breastplate that covers all of the vital organs. The righteousness of Jesus serves as the, as the primary weapon of defense against any attack from the enemy. That, 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 that we, we, we constantly position ourselves, that we constantly pursue the righteousness of Jesus. We constantly orient our lives around his teachings so that we can have the protection of the righteousness of Jesus. And when we don't live this way, when we don't pursue his righteousness, when we don't orient our life around his teaching, then what it means is, is it's, it's like we have the breastplate of righteousness that we have been given by God, but we don't put it on. When we don't orient our lives around his teachings, it's like we have the most vital part of armor that we could ever have, but we leave it at home so that we can go out and live the way that we want to live and do the things that we want to do. And what it, when we do that, it leaves the most vital portion of our lives open to attack from the enemy. And that things that otherwise should have been a glancing blow, had we had the breastplate of righteousness on, can become a fatal wound something that should not trip up or, or, or mess up or, 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 or completely annihilate a follower of Jesus becomes something that completely turns their life upside down because they have not put on the righteousness of Christ by pursuing Jesus's teachings and orienting their lives around it. It's this making sense. He goes on. He says, verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I have to tell you, I think about this verse almost on a nightly basis. When I'm going through the house, turning all the lights off and making sure the doors are locked and the TV's off, you know, doing the things that men do, you know, you make sure everybody's safe. And then you go around and complaining about how is it possible that every single light switch in this entire stinking house is on? Maybe that's just my issue. I don't know. But I think about this as I as I finish everything up, and I start walking back to my room, and I start thinking, "Dear Lord, I hope there's not a Lego, a table, or something that I'm going to step on. Would you would you help me wear the shoes of peace right now, Jesus? As I am peacefully walking, I, I, I want to go. I want to go to bed. I want to go to sleep. I'm just hmm, just drifting to La La Land, because the moment that you step on a Lego on a hardwood surface floor. Your body is not filled with peace. Your body is filled with violent rage and words that would make a sailor blush. And you want to wake somebody up and attack them. Pray for me in my house that people would put their Legos and other things away. It's their issue, not mine. He says, having shod your feet or put on your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. See, a Roman soldier's sandals would have had had little spikes in them, kind of like football cleats. Because what, what a Roman soldier wanted to be able to do is regardless of the terrain and regardless of the, the ground that he was standing on, he wanted to be able to have confidence that he could stand his ground. And he doesn't, what Paul is teaching here is that we don't stand our ground with the preparation of violence, with the preparation of conflict, with the preparation of war. We don't stand our ground by, by thinking and mapping all the things I'm going to say and all the things that I'm going to do. That's not how we stand our ground. We stand our ground with the gospel of peace. It literally means when he says the preparation of the gospel of peace, that what this means is literally there's a process of preparation where we seek the Lord and we go, okay, Lord, I don't know the battles I'm going to to be in today but I know that you already do. So God would you would you help cultivate a confidence that you are with me. Would you help me to know that regardless of whatever gets thrown at me today, that in you, Christ in me, the hope of glory, I can stand my ground, not just to stand my ground so that I can defeat somebody, so that I can dominate somebody, so that I can win the war of words with somebody, so that I can cut somebody down before they cut me down. No, 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 no. In Christ, he wants us to be prepared with the gospel of peace that brings reconciliation, that brings unity, that brings brings wholeness. And so it's the preparation of the gospel of peace that we spend some time preparing in prayer in the mornings. God, would you be with me? Would you help me to know that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, whether the news I get today is infuriating or devastating or overwhelmingly great, whatever it is, help me to have the confidence of knowing that you are with me and that with you with me, I can stand And the devil of hell can bring all of hell against me because I know with you, Jesus, I'm good. He goes on, above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The shield of faith is so critical because here's what the enemy is gonna do. If you've not experienced this, you will. The enemy is going to, he's going to shoot fiery darts, fiery arrows, not just not just arrows that inflict, this is critical we understand this, because they're not just arrows that inflict a wound that hurts, they're fiery arrows that that it inflicts a wound and then it causes everything around it to go up in flames. You see, this is one of the enemy's favorite things to do. Because if he's not able to hit a direct hit on you with an arrow, he will launch the fiery arrows of accusation He'll launch the fiery arrows of temptation. He'll launch the fiery arrows of confusion into your general vicinity. And he doesn't have to hit you directly. He just has to hit close to you. And the stuff around it will begin to burn. You see, this is what happens when you hear about a family member or a loved one's diagnosis. This is what happens when your spouse gets fired from work. This is what happens when your child is going through incredible hardships at school. This is what happens when somebody that you love and you care about that's close to you dies unexpectedly. You see the enemy's just lobbing fiery darts. He's just trying to get close to you so that he can get stuff to burn. And the shield of faith is so critical but in order to understand it, we've got to understand what faith is. What is faith? Faith is belief in action. Faith is not just a belief that you know, something is going to be and so you sit down and do nothing about it. No, 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 no. True faith, genuine faith never creates a passive posture. True faith never creates a stick my feet up and put my hands behind my faith and just enjoy the ride type of posture. True faith always creates a posture of a forward lean. True faith causes you to go, I don't care what somebody else says or what someone else does. I know who my God is. I know what he said he can do. I know what my God has said about me and anything that anyone else says that is contrary to that doesn't matter. I know that my God told me that when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that I should fear no evil because he is with me. You see, the shield of faith is the only thing that can quench. It doesn't deflect, it quenches, it extinguishes. it, it, It deflects the point of the arrow and quenches and ends the devastating fire that is attached to it. And then he wraps it up and he says this. He says, and take the helmet of salvation. Helmets you wear on your head, they protect your head, they protect your brain. There's a reason why people encourage you to wear them when you ride a motorcycle, they play football, whatever the case may be. This is interesting because, because the helmet of salvation, it's interesting that God wants us to equate a helmet as the helmet of salvation because what it's talking about is what's going on in your mind. You see, here's the problem with a lot of, Christianity and and Christian teaching is that it's, it's, it's confused and it's conflicted and it's become tainted. And there's a lot of people who proclaim to be followers of Jesus who believe that their standing with God is based on the way that they live. That you believe that, that the measure whereby God loves you, God approves of you, God affirms you, God blesses you is determined by the scale of good and bad in your life. The more good I do, the more God loves me. The more bad I do, the more that God doesn't love me. This is what we call in theological circles self-works-based righteousness. It means that my righteousness, the way that God views me is determined by how I live. But God wants us to understand that your salvation was never built on your works. It's the reason why it's the helmet of salvation. What is your view and understanding of what salvation is? If you believe that your righteousness and your salvation was dependent upon your works, that God's love of you is conditional upon how you are living moment to moment, then you have a works-based righteousness. And when you have a works-based righteousness and you believe that's the tool and the the key of salvation, then you will out of desperation, trying to get God's approval, to hear God's voice, to win God's love, to get his affirmation in hopes to receive his blessing. You will do all kinds of things of your own in desperation for those things that are foolish, that will lead you to desperation places doing stupid things that God never called you or asked you to do. But when you believe that your salvation is not based on your works, but on Christ's works, not based on who you are, but on who Jesus is, then you put on the helmet of salvation and go, no, 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 no. I don't have to work to win God's approval. I already have God's approval. I don't have to do this in order for God to love me more. No, no, no. God already loves me. I work through this every single Sunday morning when I'm on my way to church. I have I have some things that I pray. And one of the things that I pray is it's not necessarily that God needs to be reminded of this. It's that I need to hear myself say it out loud so that in my soul, I can be reminded of it because the enemy constantly wants to toss things into my ears and into my eyes that make me believe that my standing with God is based on how good of a job I do on a Sunday morning preaching the word or how good of a job I do connecting with people or how good of a job I do encouraging our volunteers or our staff, but one of the things that I pray on every weekly basis is, God, I am serving today from a position of being loved and accepted and chosen and redeemed and forgiven as a child of God. I am not serving today for those things. I am serving today from a position of already having received those things. So we put on the helmet of salvation so that we can have a right view of what salvation is. And then lastly, he says, in the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In this passage, God wants us to understand that it is the sword of the spirit, the word of God, that is our best offensive weapon. I'm gonna talk in great detail about this in a couple of weeks. But for now, what I want you to see is that because because it's our best offensive weapon. It's not a sword like one of those great big two-handed claymore Scottish swords, you know, like Braveheart, like you have to use two hands to swing it. No, no, no. He's not even talking about the, 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 the sword that you would have saw in the picture. The, the Greek word that's used here is in reference to a small dagger that would have been held in the belt, hidden in the belt of a Roman soldier. And the inference is, is that this is something that is used for close, intimate, face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat. And it's in those moments, it's me against my enemy. And in those moments, the only weapon I have is the sword, the little dagger of the spirit. It's necessary that we become familiar with our weapon. I grew up the son of a Marine and spent a lot of time around Marines and stories of training and um, and would hear my dad tell all kinds of crazy stories about what this drill instructor would have him do about assemble his weapon and disassemble and reassemble and disassemble, how fast can you do it? And if you were the last one to do it, you had to run and do all kinds of terrible, awful things. And, um, and, then, and then they spent hours and hours and hours and hours on the range training. It was, they, didn't, they didn't just interchange weapons. No, you were assigned a rifle and that rifle was yours. Matter of fact, they would have they would recite as a part of their training. I don't know the whole thing, but part of it was, this is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. And what they were training these Marines and these soldiers to do was to become so familiar with the inner workings and the ins and the outs of their rifle. Not somebody else's rifle that looks just like my rifle. No, my rifle. They would spend hours training on the range and shooting it and learning how, the, which type of uh, ammunition, which type of, how much uh, 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 gunpowder in it and all these things, what, what, what would lead to this, what result. And they would, they would spend all this time doing all of this training and the purpose of it was so that when they got into the theater of battle, that their weapon, their rifle, their pistol, whatever it was, was their weapon of choice. It did not feel like a foreign object that they would hold in their hands, but it felt like it was was an extension of their body, an extension of their arms and their hands, almost like a third limb that was so natural, so comfortable that in any environment, in any situation, I know exactly how to use my weapon. And so when you hear preachers or other Christians talking about the significance of spending time in the Word of God, spending time studying God's Word, marking out five, 10, or 15 minutes to open your Bible, it's not wrong to have a digital copy, but get a physical copy so that you can begin to come become familiar with it, so you can hold it, you know how it feels, you know where the pages are, you know where the verses are, you can mark in it and highlight it. it we, don't, we don't talk about that to try to create some guilt complex or shame or condemnation that, well, the good Christians are over here you reading the Bibles all the time and all you terrible Christians are way too busy for it. That's not the point. The point and the reason why we talk about this so much is because it is the best offensive weapon you have against the enemy that's coming at you today, whether you want it or not. And if you are unprepared, if you are not trained, then you will be defenseless when he begins to attack. As your pastor, I want you to know God's word. I want you to become familiar with God's word. It's one of the reasons why we, have, we, we pay for every year for every single person in our church to have a subscription to Right Now Media. It's, it's like the Netflix of Bible study. I put the instructions on how you can create your account free of charge. Listen, I don't see what goes on in there. It's just for you. It's for you to have it and for you to become familiar and use some incredible resources so that you can become familiar and accustomed and acquainted with the word of God. So what have we learned today? Well, we've learned that we all have battles and we face battles on a daily basis. And perhaps for a lot of us, we didn't need to be taught that, we already knew that. We learned today that when you don't recognize that everything is spiritual, you will walk into every conflict and every battle and you will fight blind, just like the image on the screen. And the advantage will always be to the opposition who can see clearly while your eyes are blocked from seeing what's really going on. We've learned today that you don't have to fight this way. You don't have to experience and go through conflict and battles and situations like this. That God wants to lead you in such a way where you can fight with eyes wide open. And God wants you to understand today that in any battle, whoever the person is that you're having battle with, a family member, a child, a parent, a coworker, a boss, or the person that you see when you look in the mirror, that person is not your problem. That person is not your real enemy. That there are spiritual forces at work pulling strings because everything is spiritual. And we learned today that if you want to win spiritual battles, that you have to use spiritual weapons. Over the next three weeks, I'm going to talk to you and teach you. And we're going to dive deeper into how you approach the battle. And I'm going to teach you how to win the battle. But for today, my hope is that you would leave here. It would just cause you to ponder as you go into conflicts this week. That you would be mindful of the realization wait, 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 hold on. That person is not my real enemy. That person's not my real problem. What's really going on here? When you begin to live this way, you will begin to see that when God talks over and over and over and over and over in Scripture that the battle belongs to the Lord, then you'll begin to realize that the battle can never belong to the Lord as long as you keep fighting it blind. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening!